0: It is so wonderful to be with you guys, and as Lorenzo said, uh, many deep connections to this community uh, through Isabel and Lorenzo, and of course, Ryan. And so, um, I've been praying for you guys for many years, watch this um, church family um, come into being, and have followed it very closely. Uh, whenever I have a problem, uh, something I'm wrestling through for organizational leadership or just vision, I always call Lorenzo. He's my go-to. He's been a dear, dear friend of mine. So it's such a pleasure just to be able to be here with you and to share from God's Word this morning. So um, I don't know what you guys normally do, but this is what I do. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word together. And so we're in Romans chapter 8, picking up in a series that you guys are doing called More, about walking by the Spirit of God. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 starting verse 1 he says therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and that is because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh god did He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. He did this in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law or way. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he does not belong to him. But if the Spirit, excuse me, now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Now, these are the verses that we're focusing on this morning, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to it. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Now, as I mentioned, you guys are all going through a series right now looking at this idea of walking in the spirit. And this is not something that is reserved for, you know, just Christian leaders or, you know, who we might consider super religious holy people. It's also not Reserved for those whose personalities are inclined to it, but this is the path, of the journey for every single follower of Jesus. And rather than being this kind of out of body existential experience, um, life in the spirit is actually a well ordered life in which we experience deep peace in God and right relationships. the world around us. Right relationship with ourself, right relationship to our neighbor, those in proximity to us, and even right relationship with the creation, the created world around us. In another place, Paul the Apostle describes life in the Spirit like this. He says, it's a life of right doing and right relationships, which results in whole person peace and joy. Now, That's fascinating, right? Because uh, we're actually doing a series at our church right now on the Sermon on the Mount. And I was talking about how in 2017, there was uh, one of the largest uh, classes ever in the history of Yale uh, was on the subject of happiness. 12,000 students signed up for this class. You think about that. Our world is still after this idea that out there somewhere... There is this kind of life that you can live that is filled with peace and joy. Actually that you can be grounded in such a way that whatever you go through just like Lorenzo was saying that if you have Jesus whatever you go through you are grounded. Your life is at peace. You're not freaking out. You're not blowing up on everyone around you. You don't, you know, just implode in these situations. There is this kind of life, waiting for anyone who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. And this is actually what it looks like to live in the Spirit. It's just another way of talking about being a Christian, a follower, or a disciple of Jesus. Now, whatever we call it, life in the Spirit is about how the Spirit of God transforms our lives over a lifetime so that we think, speak, and act more and more like Jesus and experience deep, satisfying life in him. It's the process by which God, his own character and life, is assimilated into our lives so that his character, ways, and works become almost second nature to us. You know, there's this passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about how when we are cursed that what should come out of us in response is blessing. And he doesn't mean that that should happen as like, oh, wait, hold on, let me look in the book and see, oh, yeah, okay, my response is supposed to be, God bless you, you know, or whatever it might be. Like, well, how can I serve you, right? Just to kind of get like a leg up on somebody. But actually, that when people speak evil against me, when people attack my character, that what comes out of my actual person and being is kindness, is Grace is compassion for the person in front of me. Now, how does that happen to an individual? Because normally what happens, right? It's like, you hurt me, guess what? I'm going to hurt you so much harder, right? Even the law of Moses understands this desire for revenge in human beings, right? That's why eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is a limit, on revenge in the Old Testament because we always want to take it further. We want to hurt people more than they hurt us. So how does it happen that we would actually be transformed to respond in grace, in mercy, in peace? And Paul is saying, this is the process of life in the Spirit. This is what God begins to do in us. He begins to make us like himself. And the Bible says that God is so gracious and kind in his being, he causes the rain to fall on people who deserve it and people who don't. He causes the sun to shine on people who deserve it and people who don't, because God is love. It just emanates from his being. Now, last week, you guys talked about kind of the beginning of how this process works. And how we have to, in order to actually be transformed, we have to have our minds change. What we focus on, what our goals and habits are to experience true, deep transformation. And this is not just a biblical idea. This is actually... um, how all character is formed. And Aristotle and Plato, I mean, they talked about virtue, right? How human beings grow their character. And for thousands and thousands of years, this has kind of been the path or process. You identify the goal. Now, for us who are followers of Jesus, that is to be like Jesus, to live a flourishing life in the spirit that he purchased for us to live. That's our goal. To one day rule and reign with Jesus Christ over the kingdom of God. And then we identify the habits, practices, or disciplines that reach that goal. So for us as followers of Jesus, that would be being with Jesus, cultivating his presence, just taking in his person, practicing his way of life, cultivating the fruits of the Spirit, kindness mercy, gentleness, self-control. So we practice these things becoming like Jesus. And lastly, practice these habits and disciplines until they become second nature and a part of your very being and personality. Now, are there any musicians or any athletes in the room? Maybe past athletes or musicians. No? Yeah? Yeah. I don't know what age group we're at. Okay, yeah. So we all know this, right? There are certain things if we're going to be an athlete, if we're going to, you know, run a marathon or whatever it is, we limit certain things in our life, and we practice certain habits, whether that's diet, exercise, whatever it might be. Now I'm a musician. Uh, you can tell I'm not an athlete. Uh, I'm a musician. And uh, for many, many years, right, I wanted to get my chords down. I wanted to play that C chord like I meant it, right? And so I would practice meticulously. I was in a band, and we would go through our songs over and over and over and over again so that when we stood on that stage, it played together with such, um, like, harmony, right? We played as one. And when we would play... It was like, oh my gosh, you guys are amazing. Like, You guys are so natural. You're so talented. Now, we use those terms all the time. Oh my gosh, this natural talent. Actually, what's happening is what happens for all character formation. You practice the same thing again and again and again and again and again and again and again. again. So you pick up a guitar, strum a C chord, and it's like you've been playing it forever. Right? This is how all character is formed. So even in our lives, we look at the life of Jesus We practice his way of being over and over and over and over again so that we find one day when we are attacked, our character is maligned. When things go bad for us, our response is actually one of peace. We're grounded. And it it just comes out of us. We didn't have to conjure it up. We didn't even have to look it up to say, okay, what does the Bible say about this? No, it's in you, alive and working in you. This is what it means to walk in the spirit and in the realm of the spirit. Now, I wish so badly that someone would have explained this to me about how life in the spirit works when I was a younger Christian. And I don't know if there are any of you in here who have Christian upbringing background, but in my tradition that I come out of, uh, we're a charismatic tradition. And so we had this teaching that, you know, if You find yourself a Christian, but you're still struggling with sin. The way that you, um, you know, whether, you know, as a youth, right, it's like sexual desire or it's, you know, pride or it's, um, you know, just trying to assert myself and, and trying to be accepted among my peers and all these ways that I was like tripping up over myself and just feeling so much shame. Like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I get this following Jesus thing down? And what I was told by Christian leaders is, what you need to do is you probably need the Holy Spirit. Like, well, I thought I had the Holy Spirit when I became a Christian, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? No, no, you need second baptism. And so I went to a gathering. I went, you know, raised my hand. I want the Spirit. And so I go forward. People pray for me to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Guess what happened? Nothing, right? So I'm like, okay, well, maybe I need to do something else. So I go to all of these events I go to, you know, worship events where we just cry out to God and we just, you know, kind of whip ourselves and tell God all the bad things about ourselves and we look even deeper than those things to find that there's got to be something underneath this something and that's the real problem. And essentially what I was looking for is I was looking for a silver bullet, right? I was looking for a pill that I could take that would transform my person so that I would immediately look like Jesus, And what I didn't realize is that sanctification or life in the Spirit is actually a lifelong process of putting off my old ways of thinking, of speaking, of acting, and putting on the way of Jesus, looking at the life of Jesus and doing what he did, practicing Jesus' way if he lived my life. And as I begin to do this, my character began to change. When I looked at other human beings rather than you know those to compete with, those to, you know, kind of compare, like, well, you know, I'm better than them and this and that, right? All this ego stuff, all of a sudden compassion is what came out of me. And I begin to experience joy. I begin to experience peace because I knew I was accepted by God and it had been assimilated into my life rather than frustration, fear, condemnation. And judgmentalism. This is what this passage is actually all about. And I do think that this is, in some sense, the missing key to so much of the Christian world today. We have Christian leaders and we read about them all the time, and unfortunately, their character has finally caught up with their charisma. And it's because they have never cultivated a life in the Spirit. They have, in a sense, short-circuited this process. And these characteristics of just the way the world operates are just underneath the surface. And so when put through the fire, when put through a difficulty, guess what comes out? Jealousy, lust, pride, every vile thing, as Paul says. And so it is so essential that we submit ourselves to practicing the life of the Spirit so we can experience deep transformation and we can actually experience the flourishing life that Jesus purchased for us. You guys with me? Yeah. Great. So Paul, what we're focusing on today are these verses, verses 12 and 13. And I think what Paul wants us to see here is just what I've been talking about, that life in the Spirit is this kind of holy partnership with God, or it's a cooperation with God's Spirit. So in verses 12 and 13, this is what he says, So then, right, that's like in light of everything he just said, Brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to it, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. This is very extreme language, by the way. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, in these first 11 verses that you guys have been walking through, Paul is describing to us what God has done, right? That in and through Jesus Christ, God has fulfilled the righteous requirements that he holds all of humanity to. And by Jesus becoming our replacement, standing in our stead, taking upon our judgment for the sin that we commit and even the sin done against us, he has set us free. Paul says he has done this so that the righteous requirements that he holds all people to what the law was aiming at all along might be fulfilled in us who walk in the spirit. Now Paul goes on to describe how God is at work in us, present by the Holy spirit, bringing life, God's life His quality and character to our bodies, actual physical bodies. This isn't just kind of like some existential spirituality here. So, if I could just kind of summarize this for those of you who may be new to church, um, the teaching of the Bible is this, that humanity was created by God and created for God. It's so essential that we know that and that, that is the foundation of everything that we believe. He created humans to enjoy life in love, friendship, and partnership with him, actually inviting humans to rule over the world with him in this, we're talking about holy partnership, But the story goes that the first human beings turned their backs on God and chose to center the the world at that time around themselves. This selfishness or self-centeredness of humans, what the Bible calls sin, has brought all sorts of evil, chaos, and brokenness into the world ever since. And you can actually see this right in Genesis 3. Right after this rebellion of humanity, we see directly that humans are separated and suspicious of God They are out of sorts with themselves. There's this disconnect. They feel shame and guilt within themselves. But there's also separation from humans, right? The man and the woman both blame one another and try to throw one another under the bus. And lastly, there is enmity, tension between humans and the creation. Curse is the ground because of you, God says to Adam. And now in sweat, in toil, in labor, is the only way that you are going to get fruit or life from it. So there is separation between the creation and humanity, between humans within themselves, between humans and humans, and between humans and the creation. God's good world has been corrupted, and humans are on a terrible trajectory toward chaos and implosion. But the good news of the Bible is that God's original plan for humanity has been brought back on track through God coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ has done is he has taken up the story of humanity. It's like a reboot, right? He has taken up the story of humanity, and he has done what humans could never do. He has fulfilled all of um, the right way to be human, right? Is basically what Jesus has done. He lived out God's original intent for humanity perfectly. And he invites anyone and everyone now to join him, believing that he is the only hope and redemption for humans to be rescued and redeemed. And now for those who put their trust in Jesus, what happens is the spirit of Jesus, and this is mystical stuff, right? The spirit of Jesus, in a way that we don't fully understand, comes into an individual's life and begins to work the life of Jesus into us so that we actually fulfill God's original intent for humanity. This is what God has done, is what Paul is saying. Now, these verses that we're looking at this morning, verses 11 and 12, begin then to explain our part. What do we do? And how are we responsible then to cultivate this spirit of God in us? As I thought about this passage, I began to kind of summarize it in my mind like this. A whole new operating principle is at work in you, which is the life-giving, dead-body-raising, character-transforming spirit of God. What should you do? God's life-giving, character-transforming spirit lives in you. People of God, what should you do? And Paul's instruction is this. You should cultivate that spirit of God in you. Tend to it. Pay attention to it. Listen to it. Obey it so that the spirit, life in the spirit might grow in you. Now, this cultivating the life of the spirit really has two aspects to it. There is this first aspect of we have to unlearn. We have to put off or put to death are natural and often harmful ways of thinking, living, and speaking. And then there is this positive side of walking then in the Spirit, which would be practicing God's love toward others and following specifically in the way that Jesus lived his life. I love this quote um, from Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts from their book, Echoes of Exodus. I think it's really helpful for us to see um, how important this kind of whole view of life in the Spirit is. This is what he says. Escaping from Egypt is only half of the Exodus story. It's easy for us to forget this. In an age where freedom is understood as merely being free from oppression, from constraint, or whatever... This aspect of liberation, as wonderful as it is, is only half of the deal. In the scriptures, more emphasis is placed on the freedom for, freedom for worship, freedom for flourishing, freedom for growth in obedience and joy and glory. Human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint, Slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters or even our own gods. Everybody serves somebody. So the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel or for us to find deliverance from serving the old master. It is for us to find delight in serving the new one. It's interesting. I don't know if you grew up in a church like this, but... This is kind of my story, like I was mentioning earlier. Like, I only was told half the story. Like, stop doing those things. And maybe you meet, you know, Christians who, you know, they have an experience with Jesus, and then they start going to church, and they believe that they just have to, like, turn on every aspect of their old way of living. And then they just kind of enter this neutral space. It's like, so what do you do? It's like, oh, I don't do anything. I just go to church now. And it's just like, wait, what? And we've forgotten that God is the God of all things, that he created this world richly for us to enjoy. See, the problem isn't um, things. The problem is what we have done with those things, the way that we have cultivated those things, and we've made them ends in themselves. We've made them uh, into things that are supposed to deeply satisfy and fulfill us. But once we actually lose that operating principle and bring that into the life of the Spirit, we can see how we can actually cultivate these things in a way that does honor God. And so we don't have to just be these neutral beings. Oh my gosh, we can enjoy the world rightly. We can enjoy relationships rightly now. And everything has its proper and right place when we live this way. Now, I believe that many Christians are missing out on this thoroughgoing transformation, or maybe another way to put it it would be a thoroughgoing conversion. This work that the Holy Spirit does in order to bring us into the flourishing, happy, good life that Jesus offers. And I think many times it's because we've been given this theology that says, you know, just let go and let God, right? We haven't been told that we need to cultivate life in the Spirit. And maybe for some of you, depending on your uh, religious background, right, You were taught that every biblical story and command uh, is a law versus grace paradigm, right? Like, so if you find instruction to do, like, oh, be careful, that's the law, and you're trying to save yourself. And what you're actually doing is you are hindering the cultivation of the Holy Spirit in your life. We need to be clear about this, right? The gospel, the good news of God's grace offered to us in and through the life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign of Jesus over all things is opposed to your earning, but it is not opposed to your effort. Dallas Willard, he puts it like this. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. So again, Paul is saying the spirit of the living God, the spirit who brings radical character transformation is at work in you. You need to cultivate this life of the spirit. Now, Ryan has given me the beautiful task of focusing on the negative part of this work. And I've got some beef with that because I don't like to just kind of like sit in like... He's like, you know, just talk about, like, mortification of sin. I'm like, no one uses that word. Like, it's just so dark. Um, But that's what I've been tasked with this morning, to talk about how we put to death these old ways or undo these habits and practices that we have. So, first, we need to talk about, for a minute, what Paul is talking about when he talks about being in the flesh, Now, if you grew up in the Brodersen household, that's my family, my mom and dad would throw this around all the time. Like, anybody's in a bad mood, like, oh, you're in the flesh, you're in the flesh, you're in the flesh, you're in the flesh. So it kind of has lost a lot of its meaning to me, and my wife and I now, we joke around about this kind of stuff. But what is the flesh, and why do Christians say these weird words, right? So in these passages, Paul is not talking about the flesh in terms of behavior, which is often the way that... Christians and their Christianese use it. He is first and foremost speaking of a way of being that results in certain behavior. And a good way to understand how Paul is using flesh here is to see the flesh as almost kind of like a realm in which we live in. Anybody watch Stranger Things? right? So it's like the upside down, right? It's a different realm that runs right alongside of reality, right? So this is a different kingdom. If it's, it's a different realm. And so it has different ways of operating, different ways of working, different ways of thinking and functioning, right? So another way to see it uh, from the biblical view is that this is actually just our natural human condition. This is just, as we often say, well, this is just the way the world works, Right? And there are many rulers in this realm of the flesh, according to the Bible. Uh, Some of those are success and achievement. Now, remember, these are things, right? Success and achievement, power and money, fear and love, sex and pleasure, individuality and freedom. And what I mean by rulers in these realms, is that these are, in a sense, the goals, ideals, or even gods or idols that everyone naturally serves. People who live in this natural way that the world works, these are the goals of their life. These are what they set their eyes upon. These are what they think will bring deep, lasting fulfillment to their lives. It's just the water that everyone is swimming in. Now, every human being naturally lives in this realm of the flesh believing, again, as I said, that these are the things we must live for in order to experience true meaning in life, true fulfillment. The problem is, as Paul says, they actually do the exact opposite. These lead to death. They have no power to actually save, forgive, restore, or heal us. Uh, My friend, I was actually looking at his notes for this passage, and he likened it to being on hospice, right? That's what these rulers in the realm of the flesh can do. They can, in a sense, kind of like give a little life support for a time, but they have no ability to actually restore, heal, or give deep, lasting meaning to our lives. As I said earlier, they're just things. And actually, when we put that kind of cosmic hope and significance upon them, power to forgive, uh, to give significance and deep meaning and purpose to our lives, that's actually when they have the most destructive power in our lives and in the world around us. And this is what Paul wants to say. People of God, you don't live here anymore. This is the way the world operates, the kingdom or realm of the flesh. But you don't live here anymore. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. You have been transferred from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the Spirit. And so what Paul wants for you, wants for me, is that we would start living like it, right? Like, you don't live here anymore, so don't act like you do. Now, okay, so how do I do that? How do I stop acting like I do live here? Now, now that we've been transferred from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the Spirit we have to learn how to live in this new realm and kingdom. And as I said, that means that we have to unlearn the goals, priorities, values, and habits of the realm of the flesh. One way that I like to think about this is if you chose to become a citizen of another nation, right? In many cases, to do that, you have to renounce your citizenship and country of origin. But you also take upon yourself to learn the language, to uh, learn the customs and values of this new country in which you find yourself. And the truth is, you will find that you are constantly having to adjust your old way of seeing things and engaging with people and adopting this new way of communication and relating to others in this country and culture in which you find yourself. Now, when I was a teenager, I was 13 years old. My parents moved our family from San Diego to London, England. And we actually planted a church there. And I, our family quickly adapted. I mean, I'm 13 years old, so I'm pretty adaptable at the time. We quickly adapted to life in England. But it was so interesting. Uh, you know, the British have this phrase. They call us, well, some of us, ugly Americans, and the reason is because Americans come over, and what they do is like, oh, we have that in our country, but it's bigger. <laughs> we, uh, our roads are much bigger. Wow, the stake is very small in your country. We have big stakes. It's like you know, like everybody's a Texan, like in England. You know what I mean? Like everything's bigger and better in Texas. And I don't know what it is, but it's like, would you just shut up? Like, could you please stop doing this? Like, you're giving Americans a bad name. It's like they don't know where they are, right? And they just walk around just comparing cultures, and they're just bumping into things constantly and just being so offensive, you know, hence the term ugly Americans, right? But in a sense, this is what we can also find as we walk in the realm of the spirit, right? We're constantly comparing, like bumping into things like, oh, what's that? You know, like, oh, oh," you know, like, well, you know, in the realm of the flesh, we're still thinking in the ways, the values and goals in which the world thinks, but we don't live here anymore. We need to learn the ways of the kingdom of God. We need to learn the ways of the spirit of God. And first, we need to do that by unlearning our ugly Americanness, in a sense, right? We need to put that off. So the question is, what does that look like, and how do we do it? Now, Paul does not list out the deeds of the flesh here in um, Romans 8, but he does in Galatians And I don't want to get in the weeds in this. This isn't my style of teaching anyway. But I want to read through this, and I want to kind of categorize these uh, characters of the flesh, and then I want to extract, extract some application from that. So you guys following me still? We're good? Okay, so this is what Paul says. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, which is an interesting statement, right? There's sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. It's idolatry and witchcraft. It's hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and anything else like it is what he says. Right? So Paul, and this is not an exhaustive list as we can see, right? Anything else like it. Paul uses this in Galatians, he uses it um, also in Romans, he can use it in Ephesians. He's got these lists that he uses of these character characteristics, excuse me, of the flesh that Christians are to put off. And then he has always positive redirection. And unfortunately, we have to say that for next week. But positive redirection in what we should do. Now, the first three have to do with the area of sexuality. And they refer to sexual intercourse between unmarried people, um, unnatural sexual practices in relationships, and that simply means not according to God's pattern laid out for us in Scripture, specifically monogamous male and female union as portrayed in Genesis 2. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. And then lastly, he lists this word promiscuity, uncontrolled sexuality. And then there are two words that have to do with kind of the area of religion, idolatry and sorcery. And Paul pairs these two together because he's talking about the ways that the pagan world substitutes uh, created things for the creator God, but also the way that humans seek to manipulate through sacrifice, ritual, and divination. We seek to put God in our debt, and we seek to control the outcome of our own lives. That's what Paul is referring to here. Now, going down further, Paul describes, uses eight words that describe how the flesh character... Wow, that word is hard. I just keep wanting to say characterization, and I don't know why. Characteristics of the flesh destroy relationships. And so he lists... Selfish ambition, which would be just like this competitive, self seeking spirit. Uh, Envy, when we're coveting um, what people have, and in a way that, like, they don't deserve that. I do. It's like this ego is driving all comparison. And then he talks about jealousy, the zeal and energy that comes from a starved ego. And then there's hatred hostility, and an adversarial attitude. And then he talks about basically the results of these attitudes in relationship. These produce discord, fits of rage. It just sounds like a tantrum, doesn't it? Dissensions, and then factions, permanent parties and warring factions. And then the last two that he lists together is drunkenness and orgies, now, these are not sexual orgies, just for the context. But this is basically describing like a life that is just addicted to pleasure-creating substances and experiences. That's what he's talking about. Now, again, I said I'm not going to like go through every one. We're not going to be here that long. Um, but all of these characteristics and actions of the flesh, what Paul is saying, lead further and further away from what it means to live life the way God created us to. God has created us for fellowship and union with himself, for actual wholeness within our own psyche, with for harmony and peace with other human beings, and, of course, harmony and peace with the created world around us. And as we read, all this does is it brings separation. It brings brokenness and discord. So whether it's in... Indulging in sexual practice apart from God's given direction and design, whether it's religious attempts to do without or control God or ways in which we seek power and control over other humans for our means to comfort, control, and self-satisfaction, all of these lead to breakdown and dysfunction. But as we said, life in the Spirit is a life of right doing and right relationships which results in whole person peace and joy. That's the life that God has for us. Now, NT Wright has some incredible insight into how these characteristics like get into our bones and inform the dynamics of relationships that we have with people, whether they are family, friend, or coworker. This is just so insightful. He says, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. Now, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around you. Listen to this. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as what? Creditors, debtors, partners, or customers. Anybody have a friend that wanted to, you know, do cut co with them and all of a sudden you're like are you for real? Like this is just the most offensive thing. Like like oh, I just want to come over and like hang out with you. Like this happens to my wife all the time. She's like, "Oh my gosh, I had this amazing conversation with this woman at the park. Like, gosh, she was so friendly and inviting and I like I don't know what's happening. it's, it's really cool." And then she gets this follow-up text like, hey, I'd really love to come over and talk to you about this product that I sell and, you know, whatever it is, right? And remember, I don't know if you guys remember this, what was it, LuLaRoe? What was that thing called? Oh, my God. Oh, don't get me started. Back when I was a kid, right, it was Tupperware. But it is so hurtful when all of a sudden you thought you were a friend You thought you were valued by another person. You thought, man, we see the world the same way, and you just come to find out, no, I'm just a customer. I'm just a dollar sign to this person. How degrading that is to the human soul when we treat one another this way. Now, he goes on, and he says, those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it. Their preferences, their practices, their past histories and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Now this is rampant in our culture. And it's not just, you know, for, you know, maybe those that we would say obviously this is not Christian practice, but we see this I mean, just we objectify human beings all the time. We sexualize human beings constantly. I just think about, like, L.A., Hollywood culture, whether we're talking, um, you know, film and media or we're talking sports, right? Like, human beings, to us, they have this expiration date, right? You're hot, then you're not, right? You've got this uh, expiration date in sports. Like, you're 26. Oh, my gosh, you're coming to the end of your career. You're no good to your team anymore. And so, you know, we're not talking about sexualizing someone here, but we're talking about objectifying Right? What can you do to me? What gratification or satisfaction can you give to me? Again, radically degrading to those who have been made in the image of God. He says those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. Now, I pastor and preach and study scripture for a living. I tell you, every time I read through this quote, I'm deeply convicted and you know why it's because this is the mode of operation of all of us this is just the water that we swim in this is the way that our world and culture operates where rather than seeing human beings as those made in the image of God we objectify them and we see them as means to our own ends. So how do we put away or put to death this way of seeing others and operating in the world? How do we actually cultivate a life in the spirit? Now for me, one of the ways that I have been able to put to death the deeds of the flesh in my own life has been asking myself this heart-searching question. What am I looking for? And where do I think I'm gonna find it? What am I looking for? Now, I would say that I actually have a very enjoyable marriage. My wife and I are best friends. We just enjoy doing life together. Like, if I could just go to Trader Joe's with Grace, like, that's great. Like, I'm all in. I did it yesterday. I was like, can I go with you? She's like, why? Like, I just want to hang out with you, right? I just enjoy being with her. But there have actually been times in our marriage where I have, like, had this, like, I've been just deeply dissatisfied and I've put all of this pressure on her to, you know, fulfill my deep longing, which no human being can actually do. And oftentimes what we do is when that person doesn't do it for us, it creates disdain, dismissiveness. But see, the problem is I have put all of my hope, my longing, my expectation on a human being rather than on the creator who is the source of all things. And so what I need to do is I need to go deep down to that. What am I looking for? Because I'm bumping up against grace and thinking like, oh, the problem's with grace. The problem's with our marriage. The problem's, you know, it's this. No, I'm just at the surface. There's something deeper going on, Char. You're hungering and thirsting for meaning, for significance, for fulfillment. What are you looking for? And this is, I think, the first principle of putting to death the old way of thinking, speaking, and acting. The old goals is that we have to do this like deep, deep heart surgery where we look deeper and say, What am I actually after? And where do I think I'm going to find it? Now, there is this incredible passage, and actually, this is how I came to this principle in my life. There's this powerful passage in the life of King David. King David is famous for two things, right? He slayed Goliath the giant. What's the other thing he's famous for? You guys know? He slept with his friend's wife wife and then murdered him. Awful. Now, David tries to cover this whole thing up of sleeping with his friend's wife, murdering him, and he thinks everything's good. And what happens is there's a prophet named Nathan that comes to David, and he tells him this story, you know, about this individual who did this terrible thing in his kingdom. He um, had all these sheep, and he's super wealthy, but his neighbor had one little lamb that he dearly loved. And when some friends came over to have a a meal with him, he stole that man's sheep, slaughtered it, and fed it to his friends. And David's like, are you kidding me? Like, that man's going to die. And Nathan's like, David, I'm talking about you. (laughs) And he's like, oh, right? Like, uh uh-oh. And Nathan says one of the most amazing things to David. He says, God says to you, David, I took you from nothing and I gave you everything. And he said, and if this wasn't enough, I would have done much more. Church, what are you looking for? And where do you think you're going to find it? You think you're going to find it by taking it from someone else? From extracting it from another human being. No, what you're looking for is you're looking for God. St. Augustine, one of the first um, you know, theologians of the church, he actually wrote the first autobiography we have in history. But he has this amazing line in his confessions. He says, Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our souls are restless until they rest in you. What Augustine is doing is what I'm talking about. He's reclaiming this truth. We have been created by God, and we have been created for God. And any time we live outside of that truth, we will experience deep dissatisfaction. We will experience deep dissonance with ourselves with the world around us, people that we actually dearly love and appreciate, deep separation, hurt, discord, because we have been made for God. And I do believe that this is the beginning of what it means to put to death our old habits, to do what Paul the Apostle is talking about here. In another place, Paul puts it like this. He says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. So that means that you and I and the relationships that we have and the places, you know, that we work, these dynamics, that as we look at the human beings around us and we're tempted to use people for our own, you know, to kind of quench our own fears or to satisfy some deep need for comfort, whatever it might be, that we would take those thoughts, those desires, and we would actually hand them over to God. So, and this is like this redirecting work. And actually, I mean, we don't have time really to go into this. And I told Lorenzo I would actually try to keep my time, and I'm already over. But if you know anything about the way that your brain actually works, you know that you can rewire your brain. And it has to do with what I was talking about earlier, finding those goals and creating those habits in which you can actually take deep caverns, almost like these like information highways in your brain, and you can redirect those, especially by the power of the Spirit of God working in you and through you, you can be a new creation. You can change the way that you view people. You can change the way that you relate to people. You can be new. You can be renewed in your view. But it has to do with this. It has to do with taking hold of those goals, those thoughts, those actions, catching them and redirecting them to God. Truly, you have made us for yourself. and My soul will be restless until it rests in you, O Lord. Anytime we have a thought that is out of line with the character and way of Jesus, that we catch it, we correct it, address it, and simply redirect it to God. Now, this could be in the way that we see God. Seeing God as Scripture sees him as the fountain of joy, the source of all goodness and life. Our Father who loves us, who wills our good. And who in and through Jesus says to each of us, you are mine, I love you, and I am pleased with you. Some of you have what's called evangelical guilt, right? Right? And in your relationship to God, what you often say like in your prayers or time of worship is I'm a sewer, I'm a dirty, rotten sewer. And what God says to you is no, you're not. You are created by me, you are created for me and I dearly love you. As you are, not just as you should be or for what you will be, but I love you. Just like I love my children who are in the middle of their own maturity and sanctification, right? They are mine. There is this deep ownership, and identity with you. The Spirit of God wants to change the way that we see and relate to God, that we would relate to him as good Father, source of all joy and goodness. What are you looking for, David? Right? Why didn't you just ask me? I would deeply satisfy you. I would pour out more love on you if this isn't enough. But the Spirit of God also wants to change the way that we see ourselves. Paul told us already, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is kind of just adding to what I just said before. But it's not just enough to say, okay, God isn't angry at us, right? That God doesn't have desires to destroy us. Oh, I guess that's pretty good. I mean, that's kind of a low bar, right? Right? It's not just that God doesn't have a negative or condemning posture relationship towards this. Paul goes on to talk about God's saving power through what Jesus has done, fulfilling the law and its requirements for all humanity and radically reorienting our relationship to God forever. What Paul wants us to know is God is in your corner. He is for you, not against you. He knows the deep longings and desires of your heart. And guess what? He put them there and he desires to fulfill them. Now, not in the way that we think or our culture and world says, but in his way, in a way that brings life to the world around us, in a way that honors the image of God that he has stamped upon us. And lastly, the Spirit of God wants to change the way we see others, those created by God, created for God, those dearly loved by God. Are you guys familiar with an author named Andy Crouch? Uh, Andy Crouch, he worked for Christianity Today for years. He was the chief editor there. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, his most recent book. It's called The Life We're Looking For. And he has this chapter where he talks about being stuck in an airport. He does a lot of traveling. Uh, he was stuck there, I think, like uh, almost like two-day delay, something crazy. Maybe it was when uh, Southwest was all going crazy, right? And he's an individual who's deeply committed to character formation. He talks about this a lot. He uh, wrote a book called The TechWise Family, Phenomenal Insights. Um, so he was... Thinking, like, okay, how do I, like, use this time and think deeply about my character? So what he decided to do is he decided to walk through the airport terminal. And as he did, he fixed his gaze on certain individuals. And he said, the image of God. I mean, not out loud, right? Like, that would be kind of (laughs) weird. The image of God, right? And it's like, but just to himself. Like, I want to, like, make eye contact with an individual and just say within myself, this person bears God's image. Created by God, created for God. You're talking about what a deeply grounding practice this was. Think about what's just going on in our culture right now. I mean, social media is probably the worst example of it and probably blown out of proportion. But the way that we cannot even see or hear the person on the other side anymore. And some of the vitriol, um, just hatred that is even coming out of people who claim to know the God who is love. One of the ways that we can cultivate this life in the Spirit is by seeing the image of God in the other. It does not mean that we approve of everything that this person lives for or what this person does, but we see the potential of each individual. We see what they were created for. We see that they are deeply valued by God and therefore should be deeply valued. By us, should be seen, should be heard, worthy of dignity and honor. Actually, my family and I, we did a bike ride down um, in Newport Beach yesterday. We live in Orange County, as was mentioned. And as I rode um, on the bike trail, I mean, there were just thousands of people down at the beach. I just decided to do this practice. And it was interesting just for me and my own judgmentalism and the way that I see people just how deeply challenging this was to look at individuals and say the image of God. This one bears the image of God. Church, I believe that as we take up these principles, these practices, these goals of the way of the Spirit, this is how we put to death the deeds of the flesh the way that just the world around us thinks and operates, its goals, its values, what it's looking for. This is how we do that. And I believe wholeheartedly that if each of us practice this discipline in our own lives, of seeing each person in front of us as one who bears the image of God, deeply loved and valued by God, it would radically reorient our minds and character to walk in the Spirit and it would be manifest in the way that we treat human beings around us. It would radically change our posture towards the world. No longer seeing human beings as those we can get something out of, as objects of desire to fill our lust, emptiness, insecurity, or satisfy our fear or heal our pain, but those to be loved and served, even as God in Jesus Christ has loved us and has served us ultimately by giving his life for us at the cross. This is who we are. We're the people of God. We're the redeemed, loved, purchased people of God. And God is acting, asking us to take these truths to bear upon our hearts and to get down to the root of how we naturally operate and to uproot those things and to plant his love deep within us so that it might grow and that it might be put on display for the world around us to see what God is really like. Now may God by his spirit give each of us insight and how we are to live this out in our own lives. I think one way that we can do this, I'll just close with this, is asking ourselves where do I hurt? And what am I afraid of? Now, these are deeply searching questions. And in that moment, we can bring the love, the presence of God to bear upon our deep pain and our deep fear. And as we bring God's presence into those deep, broken places of our lives, guess what? It will bring healing so that we don't abuse and use human beings in our lives to try to bring healing or comfort or satisfaction to those places. So that's one way, that's one place that we can start to do this deep work of putting to death the old ways of operating and living in the life of the Spirit that brings deep peace and lasting joy.